an integral part of God's work of redemption has always been those men who He has set apart and sent into the world with His Word. Or to say it more briefly, God has always had His preachers from the very beginning. And this would make sense. The first gospel sermon that we have in Scripture was was proclaimed by God Himself in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God was there declaring to the ancient serpent, the devil, that there was coming a Savior, a conqueror who would come into the world and, and destroy him. When the Son of God came into the world, He came preaching. Mark 1.14 says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So we see in the book of Genesis, God comes and preaches the first gospel sermon. Then when the Son of God comes into the world, what is He doing? He comes preaching the gospel, doing the same thing. After finishing the work of our salvation in His death, and then before ascending into the heavens to take His throne... The Lord Jesus said to His disciples in John 20, 21, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So we have this picture that God proclaims. Then the Son of God comes. He proclaims. The Son of God trains His disciples. He sends them into the world. And what does He tell them? Luke 24 says that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed or should be preached in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. He sent them in the world, into the world to preach. And this is why the Apostle Paul would later say in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Necessity is laid upon me. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. He was joining God in this ancient scheme of bringing sinners to Himself. And Paul was confident that everyone, through this preaching, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Every single one. And yet he still asked rhetorically, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear of him without a preacher? And how are they to preach unless unless they are sent? Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, articulating the very mind of God Himself assumed the necessity of the living preacher. He assumes that. Now the question that we answered last week was, how should we think about the men who fulfill this function in God's purposes? How should we think about them? Well, let's read again 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verses beginning in verse 1, and this time I'll read through verse 9. Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it, and even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh, and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? And here's where we studied last week. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. 
I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. Again, the question last week was, how are we to think about these men that God sends into the world to preach? And Paul answers the question. Servants. They are servants of the church. They are ministers of the Word. They are simply a vehicle to bring the Word of God to the people, and they do this under the authority of their Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we should think of them. Servants, ministers, and I explained last week, even the idea of a waiter in a restaurant. That's the picture that the Scriptures give here. And of course, this should eradicate all boasting in men. The very thing the Corinthians were doing, what Paul has just said here, should dispel all of that. There should be no boasting as men in men, as he's already said in chapter 1. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The the Corinthians were boasting in men, and Paul is laboring to explain why that is absolutely foolish. To put this matter into a, a brief negative statement then, you should not boast in men. That's simple, right? You should not boast in men. Now, with, with all of the statutes and commandments of God, prohibition or however it might be worded, we, we understand that the law of God, while it might come with a negative, there's always an assumed positive aspect. So if the, if the doctrine that we could draw from those, the things that he said so far is, you should not boast in men, well, then the flip side of that, we could ask, well, then what should we boast in? Where is our boast? He's already given the answer, remember, back in chapter 1. As it is written, let the one who boasts... Boast in the Lord. Don't boast in men. Boast in the Lord. Well, here, and we're going to pick up in verses 6 through 9, Paul's just elaborating and explaining that principle, why that must be the case. And the argument here goes something like this. Yes, the preacher does have a role to play. I'm using the word preacher in the broadest sense, whether you're thinking of, a, of the pastors and elders of a church, whether you're thinking of the gifted brethren, whether you're thinking of the evangelists, whether you're thinking of uh, even, even in our day we can take into account uh, a sermon or a preacher we might see online or on, on uh, the internet somewhere. We might listen to uh, on a podcast or maybe even we're reading books from men that God has gifted in the past or commentaries. All of these ways that God uses men, they do have a role to play, But don't boast in them. Don't boast in the preacher for his role. Rather, boast in God for whatever role or function or usefulness you might see. Don't boast in the man. Boast in God. Very simple. As Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 3, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church. To Him be glory in the church. Not to the preacher be glory, but to God. All of the glory for all that God does in His churches belongs to God alone. And so that's what Paul is explaining here in verses 6 through 9. 
Let's read those verses again together. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Now in these verses we see three things. I'm going I'm to structure this according to three points. Number one, God uses men. Number two, God rewards men. Number three, God owns men. God uses men. God rewards men. God owns men. So number one, God uses men. And this we see in verses 6 and 7. God uses men. Both Paul and Apollos had played very important roles in the establishment and the growth of this church in Corinth. And yet, the fruit of their labors was owing only to God. God had used them. And Paul uses that reality or that truth to, to give us a principle. And that is that regardless of the man or men who have been instrumental in your walk with the Lord or my walk with the Lord, regardless of who they were, it was God alone who was causing the growth. And even still, it is God who gives the growth. Notice what he says. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now first Paul draws our attention to his own work. And he uses the metaphor of a gardener. He says, I planted. And it means to put seeds in the ground. I, I planted. And he's speaking of his, his initial preaching labors among the saints in Corinth. If we go back to Acts chapter 18, we won't turn there, but we, we read these kinds of statements. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. He stayed a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. So Paul was like the, the farmer in the parable. He goes into Corinth scattering the seed of the word. He, he preaches the seed of the gospel. And the imagery of, of planting, and you'll very often hear people nowadays talk about church planting. And typically the idea, especially from a biblical perspective, is used of those who originally arrive among a people and they are the first ones to deliver the trumpet blast of the gospel among them to begin to gather saints together to establish a church there. Now that's not all that Paul did. He didn't just show up and preach the gospel and then back uh, fade into the into the corner or into the darkness. It says he stayed for 18 months. But he was the first to labor among them. He did the first work among that people. Then he draws our attention to the work of Apollos. He says, I planted, Apollos watered. Now, most of you know, I assume even the children know, this is what you do after you plant the seeds, right? You water the seeds. And this would be a reference to the ministry of Apollos among them after Paul had left. Again, back in Acts chapter 18, Apollos, 
a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. And when he wished to, across, to cross to Achaia, so I'm going to do this, this will be backwards for you. But So he's in Ephesus, he wants to cross the sea over to the area called Achaia. Achaia was a big area, Corinth was a city in Achaia. So we would read this and say, Apollos wants to go to be in or with the saints of Corinth. He wants to go in that direction. It says, when he wished to cross to Achaia... The brothers, that be in Ephesus, encouraged him and wrote to the disciples, that would be the saints in Corinth, wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Notice what Apollos did. He greatly helped those who through grace had believed. More than likely, that's a reference to the people who were converted under the ministry of Paul. They're still there. They've established a church of some sort. Now Apollos comes later to help them. He greatly helped them. Now that isn't to say that nobody was converted under the ministry of Apollos any more than it is to say Paul only preached the gospel and didn't disciple anyone. It's, just a, it's giving us a general picture or pattern of how this works. Paul came first, people are converted, they begin to be discipled, Apollos comes later, he picks up where Paul left off, and he greatly helps them. But they both had a specific part to play in the history of this church. I planted, Apollos watered, we're not ignoring that, but he says, but God gave the growth. Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God gave the increase. God gave the advancement. Any progress, any fruit whatsoever that came from their ministry came from God. Now this doesn't mean, if we're thinking again metaphorically of the seed in the ground, this doesn't mean that once the seed began to germinate and the roots started going down into the ground and the stem broke up through the soil, that then God took over and began to give life. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is any and all progress from the very beginning was owing to God. From germination to fruit. If God would not have worked upon that seed of the gospel, it would have just remained a seed. It would have corroded into the ground and turned to dust. From the very beginning, it was all owing to God. God did it. And if you pay attention to the verbs... The work of both Paul and Apollos are mentioned as past actions. And this doesn't always come through in, in English, but God's work is always ongoing. We, we would almost read it like this. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Throughout the whole thing, God is giving growth. Now what kind of growth are we talking about here? We're talking about... From the very beginning, the, the regenerating work of the Spirit of God, bringing life from the dead, a new, a new creature, and then that then producing repentance and faith, and then all progress and growth and sanctification, the ongoing activity of repentance, the ongoing and increasing work of faith, the mortification of sin, the putting on of righteousness and growing in, in the fruit of the Spirit. All of that, he's saying, God did that. God did that. This is the Spirit-inspired analysis of the ministry of Paul and Apollos in Corinth. Paul performed his task. 
Apollos performed his task. And all the while, God is causing growth through their ministry. If people believed when Paul preached, it was God who did that. God brought them forth by the word of truth. If people were greatly helped in their faith, it was God who through grace helped them. Now that doesn't negate the fact that the text says Apollos greatly helped them. Who helped? Was it Apollos or was it God? Yes, God using Apollos. So Paul then, that's verse 6, Paul then takes those specifics and draws out a general principle in verse 7. So, the idea is a deduction. Here's what we deduce from that. So, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So just like with natural plants, we can plant seeds in the ground and we can water those seeds, but the life-giving power which actually causes them to, to germinate, to, to break, break off the, the seed coat, to send roots down and to send the stalk upward, all of that, that that's God. That, that is God giving life to an inanimate creature. We can't do that. A lot of times we think it's almost like, you know... Uh, what is it, baking soda and vinegar or, or, or Coke and Mentos. You know, if you mix these things, something's going to happen. It's a, a, um, a chemical reaction of some sort. No, that's not how the growth in plants is. It's, it's, there's life there. God must give that life. God alone can cause that to take place. And he's saying it's the same with the preaching of the Word of God. The preaching, or the, the, the one who preaches the gospel and, and those who come after in teaching and discipling are not the formal causes of salvation. In, in modern times, this is very often the same man or men. We, we don't very often see this type of pattern where an evangelist comes, a church is planted, and he moves along when, while others come in and, and take over. Usually it's the same man or men. The point is still the same. Those man or men are not the formal causes of salvation. Nor is it a chemical reaction where just because the word goes out and it goes into people's ears, all of a sudden there's grace and there's salvation. That's not the case. In the greater salvific sense, these men are nothing. He says, neither is anything. That's the negative. Positively, both are nothing. Effectively, nothing. So again, I say the, the point that Paul's making is this. Regardless of the man or men who have been entrusted, or, or instrumental rather, been instrumental in your walk with the Lord... It was God alone who was causing the growth. And still now, it is God who gives the growth. The men are nothing. God is everything. Now, there are several truths that we, we keep in balance here. The first is this, that, that men are instrumental and, in fact, necessary. Men are instrumental and in fact necessary to the work of the ministry. And I say necessary not as if God were under some compulsion, but simply because God has arranged and ordered affairs to be this way. Necessary. We shouldn't read, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, as if to say that there's no use at all for the human preacher. Why? Well, Paul himself just said the opposite. He just said, I planted, Apollos watered, we did have our role to play, we did a job, we played our part, 
Elsewhere, as we've read, he said, how are they to hear without a preacher? The, the, the rhetorical answer expected is they can't hear without a preacher. They can't hear without the human instrument. In Ephesians 4, he, Christ, ascended and he gave gifts to men. This is, this is a, an arrangement of the ascended Christ himself. Because of our history, as bold, independent Americans, independent thinkers, we often look for any excuse to strike out on our own and disregard any type of help or guidance. Now, I don't, know, I don't know that you have to be an American in particular, but this is especially true of children from anywhere in the world. The, the childish and immature mind is very often a mind of absolute independence, not having a clue how dependent they really are, and, and we often adopt this even as we mature. We, we think that we are independent creatures, and that thinking has crept into the church. American Christianity has been inundated with that type of independent spirit, as well as the overwhelming prevalence of Eastern mysticism that flavors pretty much all religious thought. I don't think most of us are aware how much mysticism and Eastern religious thinking has crept into what we call American Christianity, but it has crept in so, so that we often think in terms of the private individual as the primary avenue for the impartation of the Word of God. In, in other words, in our minds, we think that to sit alone and usually wait and feel and experience the revelation of God or from God, that that should always take precedence over being taught the Word of God from another. We will, we will often put quote, being taught by God over against or in contrast to being taught by men. I want to be taught by God. I don't want to be taught by men. Well, the problem with that thinking is manifold. I'll give you two, two instances or two, two problems. First, God in His Word, as we're seeing here, actually conveys and displays a different method. So the person who says, well, I just, all I need is me alone in a private chair with my Bible on my lap and nothing else. Well, if you do that long enough and you're paying attention, you're going to find out God never meant for you to sit alone with your Bible on your lap all by yourself. The Word of God actually contradicts that type of thinking. And secondly, and I think this might uh, be easier for us to notice, if, if we take this type of thinking, we actually end up being self contradictory what how so the idea is to be taught by god all by yourself alone with 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 no helps that that is the way we ought to to start our our study into god's word we start there here's the problem none of us started there and none of us treat our children that way how many of us before our children are able to read we begin to teach them we begin to catechize them. We bring them to church. We instruct them. We already begin to give them a grid through which to read the Scriptures when they are able to read. 
And when they do begin to read, and they read in the beginning, God, and they look up at us and they say, who is God? We don't say, I really wish I could tell you. But I can't. It's not my place. You just go alone in your room. And you sit with your Bible on your lap. And God will make that known. None of us does that. Nobody does that. We say, let me tell you about this God. And we bring our knowledge from the rest of Scripture to bear on that phrase, in the beginning, God. And, and every time we come back to the book of Genesis, we, we uh, pour into that word God all that we read after those words the last time we read through the Scriptures. We don't do this with our children. Historically speaking, this is not the way anybody has ever treated the... the this term is, is a bad word in our culture, but the indoctrination of the next generation. Christians have always said, from the time they're able to understand, I'm indoctrinating, I'm teaching, I'm instructing. Whether that's catechetical or whether it's some other form, we, are, we, we don't just say, go read your Bible by yourself, I can't tell you anything, you're on your own. We don't treat our children that way. Another way that we end up being self-contradictory is, is this. In our, in our attempts to be taught, quote, by God, rather than by man in our attempts to sit alone by ourselves with our Bible on our lap and no helps, very often we actually just in, end up being taught by a different man, and it's the man in the mirror. I, I come to this as the sole interpreter of Scripture. Nobody else is allowed to teach me. I will decide what this means for myself and for me. And we think then that because we have felt or come to a conclusion, God has taught me this. Well, the problem with that is, for those of you who have been through this, and this happens often when you're, when you're studying and, and preparing to teach, is you read one commentary and they obliterate everything you thought. And you say, I, I had no idea. I, I, was, I just read too much into it, didn't read enough into it, whatever. I thought I understood it. And then he just makes it so clear. We, we realize we're not quite as smart as we think we are. Very often we pretend as though the meaning of the Bible might be different for me than it is for somebody else. And that the best way for me to come to that meeting is to just sit long enough and, and quiet enough and God will, will just zap that meaning into my mind. And the, 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 the meditation work is trying to figure out the meaning. Now that's Eastern mysticism. Clear your mind and think and wait for something to be poured into you, some idea to come about. That's not Christian meditation. Christian meditation determines the objective truth. Here's what it means. Now meditate on that. How does that apply? Now if I can come to that by a plain reading, praise the Lord. If I have to go to a commentary and he says, and he shows me this is what it means, I've got the objective truth. Now I'm usually going to compare. I'm usually going to get multiple. I'm going to weigh. I'm not going to let one man be the sole interpreter either. This is why creeds and confessions are so important. Groups of men throughout history, the, the church has helped us to come to these things and to understand the truth. We, we don't have to come to it and say, well, I know everybody has always said that, but I think I might can find a, a new and better, a different meaning for me. That's not Christianity. Being taught by God and being taught by men are not opposing ideas. The pattern given in the scriptures is that God teaches us 
through men. Now, I'm not, none of this is meant to say don't read your Bible by yourself. That doesn't need to be our, our, our sole preeminent uh, way of coming to an understanding of the Scriptures. We, we don't need to place that on a pedestal above these other means that God has given. God has given the growth through the ministry of men. God uses men. So don't read these verses 6 and 7 and go home and say, I'm throwing away all my commentaries. These, these men are nothing. No, that's not what he's saying. Men have been instrumental. And I, and I think we would all agree with that. Men have been instrumental for us all. We've, we've all been taught by or learned from or greatly benefited from the, the help of Christ's gifts to His church. All of us have. And it's important that we learn to admit that. It, it is okay to say, I didn't know what it meant until I asked so-and-so and read so-and-so and considered this and compared this text with that text, and then it made, then it made sense. That, there's nothing wrong with that. If we're not willing to admit that, very often it just leads us to, to pride. We open ourselves up to pretty much every heresy that has ever plagued the church. If you pay attention historically and presently, pretty much every heresy that has ever come about has come from professing Christians sitting alone with their Bible. And they said, I'm not going to listen to what anybody else says. I can figure this out. And that is what led to, to heresy. It's, it's, it's dangerous. And, and God and, and His Son have never meant for us to go about this in this fashion. Men have been instrumental in all of our walks by design. But having said that, Paul's point is that whatever growth, growth in grace we have achieved, the glory belongs to God. It's not those men. It's not those men. And, and another helpful fruit that comes from reading from, learning from, listening to, paying attention to other gifts of Christ's church is you recognize how often they will be wrong. They too will be wrong. You, you, this is the danger of having one commentary. You read one commentary and you read three more and you say, this guy over here, he's off his rocker. He's strange. He's got a weird view. And these other guys will say, so-and-so, is, he's got a strange view. That, that doesn't match with the rest. But it helps us to, to see that the, 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 the growth and the understanding that we have that, that comes from these helps is owing to God and not men. Your union with Christ and the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit is owing to God alone. The fact that your eyes have been opened to the truth about who you are and who God is, that's owing to God alone. Your, your first little weak infantile grasp of Christ as the only Savior of sinners, that's owing to Christ alone, to God alone. Your, your first little baby Christian whimpers of repentance and faith, that's owing to God alone. God is the one who done that. And ever since then, every little tidbit of truth that you have gleaned from God's Word, whether in secret or through a teacher, God gave you that. And every increase of any grace or fruit of the Spirit in you, whether you realize it or not, in the moment, usually we don't realize it. We don't feel grace, you know, coming into us and we're growing. You say, wow, man, I, I feel a lot more meek. After, we don't feel it. We might be able to look back and say, the Lord has helped me to grow. But all along the way, it's been given from God. Now, you might say, and I've said things like this, I don't think it's necessarily wrong, but you might say things like, wow, that, that one book, that, that really changed my whole world. No, God changed your world through a gift to His church. 
That one sermon illustration, that boy, that just that opened my eyes to the text. No, God opened your eyes to the text. As Spurgeon said, sermon illustrations are like windows. They just let the light in. God gives the illumination. You might say, I never thought of this particular action as sinful until so-and-so said such. God gave that conviction of sin. Don't blame me. If you're convicted of some sin, don't blame the preacher. God does that. God does that for His people. Any growth in grace comes from God, and God hasn't changed His, his methods Still today, this very day, the, the same principle remains. And again, if we can go back to the, 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 the literal rendering of these two verses, Paul's verbiage shifts so that we see that what happened in Corinth is, is the ongoing principle. If we, if we wanted to give a, an interpretive translation of what he's saying here, it would sound like this. In the past, I planted and Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So the principle deduced is that neither he who is planting nor he who is watering is anything, but only God who is giving the growth. You see, it's ongoing all the time because God hasn't changed and His methods haven't changed. It's the same God using the same methods. Now, if this is God's method, we can draw out at least this application, and that is that it behooves us to pray to God growth. Very simple. If I'm convinced and convicted that the Word of God teaches that regardless of the human teacher, God is the one who gives the growth, then I'm going to be going to God to ask for the growth. Now, we make use of our human gifts. We make use of our preachers and teachers. and We, we, we don't throw those aside, but we pray to God in the use of those things. God, teach me. Help me to discern. If I read such and such and he's wrong, help me to see it. And most of you have, have, have had that experience where you pull out, let's say Matthew Henry. You pull out Matthew Henry and you read and you say, man, I mean, it, it sounds good. I just, uh, I think he's gone a little too far. So you read somebody else. Now that sounds a little more middle ground. You're, you're learning to discern those types of things, Right? But we have to go praying to God all along the way. If you're going to a meeting with a pastor, God, you help me through this man. I'm not going to this man to solve all my problems. God, I'm just going to an instrument that you have given to help. And you pray to him. At the same time, pray for those instruments. Pray for the men who minister the word to you. God is everything and all growth is from God. And yet God uses means to achieve his Ends. And so pray that God would give the growth and pray that God would use His instruments or pray for the instruments that God chooses to use that they would be effective tools. Paul does this repeatedly in his, in his epistles. He asks for prayer. The Apostle Paul never assumed anything besides, number one, the absolute necessity of men in God's service. How shall they hear without a preacher? Woe is me if I preach not the gospel but also the absolute necessity of prayer to God to make those men useful. If you lean everything on the man with no prayer, you're probably going to get nothing. If you lean everything on prayer, but then you don't make use of the means God has given, you're probably going to get nothing. God has given both. We need to make use of those. God uses men. 
Regardless of the man or men who have been instrumental in your walk with the Lord, it was God alone who was causing that growth. And still now it is God who gives the growth. Number two, God rewards men. God rewards men in verse 8. Here we have another defense of the usefulness of God's servants. That He rewards them, but we also see that though there is a unity in service, there is a, a diversity in reward. And in the end, God will reward each of His servants. Verse 8 says, He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. So first we see there is a unity in their service. He who plants and he who waters are one. Now in, in Paul's experience here, that was Paul and Apollos. He's saying they're one. They, they, are, they are united in their purpose. One in the fact that they're both serving Christ to the same end, which is His glory. They are one. And yet, there is a diversity in reward. Each will receive his wages according to his labor. Each individual will be paid. God does use men, and we see that in the fact that He's going to reward them for what He used them to do. At the same time, each of them is going to be paid according to his own labor. Now this goes back to what we saw last week. They're united in purpose but not in assignment. Remember verse 5 said, As the Lord assigned to each, God assigns a, a different task or role or function to different men, and then God gives the payment to those men for how they carried out that work. Listen to these, these two parables. and We sort of put them together. First, there's what we call the parable of the talents. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. To each according to his ability, then he went away. Now in that parable we see that the Lord gives as he sees fit. And it is his prerogative to do that. He can say, I'm going to give you five and give you two. And we can't say, well, I wanted five. No, God gets to give as He pleases. And it is not wrong that He gives different uh, gifts and graces to different men. There's nothing wrong with that. That's normal. We compare that to a similar but different parable in Luke's gospel, the parable of the minas. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. The second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, You are to be over five cities. Now in that parable, he gave all of the, the stewards the same amount, one mina each, and they brought back to him varying amounts. They were able to, to uh, recuperate a, a variation in reward for their, for their Lord. And then he rewarded them in direct accord with what they did. You bring me ten minas, you're over ten cities. You bring me five minas, you're over five cities. The reward was paralleled with what they had returned. We put these two parables together and we, we learned that God entrusts to different men different sets of gifts, different uh, talents, 
And yet he expects a return on all of them, and he will record, reward them according to how they steward what he gave them. And Paul was confident of this. this he's going to go, go on and unpack this in verses 10 and following. In chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, verses 2 through 5, he, he goes into the same matter. He says at the, the end of verse 5 of chapter 4, each one will receive his commendation from God. That, that's Paul's driving emphasis from here on outward is there is going to be work, there is going to be reward. God is the one who renders the reward according to the work. God rewards men. Now from that we can all take comfort because we know as we learned last Lord's Day evening, God is the only lawgiver. He's the perfect righteous lawgiver. Tonight we're going to see that God as lawgiver is also the perfect judge and He will reward all of His servants when the time comes. That's good news for us. That's true for all of the saints, not just preachers. All of the saints have the same lawgiver and judge and all of us will receive rewards according to our the way that we handle the stewardship given to us. Just as not all judgment is the same, but worse for some than others, so also not all of our heavenly rewards are the same. The judgment... Christ said it's going to be worse for, for Bethsaida and for Capernaum than for Tyre and Sidon and for Sodom and Gomorrah. Variations in judgment. To put it simply, hell will be worse for some than for others. Don't take any comfort in that. The people in this room will get the worst. It will be the worst for those of us who have heard plainly and clearly and repeatedly and yet we refuse to repent and come to Christ those will receive the worst types of punishment. But the same goes for rewards. Not everybody is going to get the exact same heavenly rewards. Our rewards will be given to us according to our service. That is, according to how we used all that God has given us to serve Him and to increase His glory on the earth. So here's another great application. Knowing all of this, knowing that we're all going to go out into life say tomorrow, and we're, we are daily presented with options of how we will live, what we'll do, what we'll say, what we won't say, how we'll spend our money, how we'll save our money, how we'll spend our time, etc. We're all going to be confronted with decisions. We're going to have to live the Christian life. Well, one way that we can think through decisions is to, to place this filter over them and ask this question, what will be my reward for this? If I take option A, what do I expect will be my heavenly reward for that? Will there be a reward at all? Is this the kind of thing God rewards people for? If I, if I go this route, what will be my reward? If I make this decision, what will be my reward? If I buy this thing, what will be my reward in heaven? If I say this to this person, what will be my reward? If I say nothing, what will be my reward in heaven? Remember that God is a just and righteous God and He will render to all in perfect equity according to what we have done. Remember Christ said of those who sought the glory of men, they have received their reward. And many times we might ask that question of our decisions. If I go this route, what will be my reward? And the answer is the praises of men. That's all you're going to get. A little bit of earthly pleasure. That'll be your reward. 
No heavenly reward. But of those who would suffer for Christ, it was said, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. What will be my reward for this? Well, men will hate me. Men will persecute me. I'll, I'll lose everything. But Christ says, Great will be your reward in heaven. Use that. Understanding that God is righteous and He will reward men. But number three, verse nine, we see that God owns men. God owns men. Ultimately, God is able to use men and God is able to reward men because God is the owner and master of all men and especially His church. He's the master of the house. He oversees all of the affairs. He owns all of the minors, all of the talents. It's all His. He dispenses at His pleasure. He rewards at His pleasure because He owns it all. He says in verse 9, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Paul addresses both the preachers and those to whom they preach. First, God owns the preachers. He says, for we are God's fellow workers. Speaking of Paul and Apollos. That is, we are fellow workers owned by God. God's fellow workers. We work with God insofar as we submit to His direction and follow His commands to bring about His purposes. God owns the preachers. But He also owns the church. He says, Back to the saints in Corinth, you, plural, y'all, y'all are God's field, God's building. Now he's using two metaphors. God's field, that relates back to what he said earlier. I planted, Apollos watered like a field, a farmer in a field. Then he says you are God's building. He's going to take that illustration and move forward with it in the coming verses and address the concept of the church as the temple of God. The point he's making here is that God owns the whole thing. Call it a field, it's God's field. Call it a building, it's God's building. He owns it all. This, this verse, if we read it literally, would sound like this. God's fellow workers we are. God's field, God's building, you are. The emphasis is on God. We don't boast in men. We boast in God. Why? God owns it all. God owns us. God owns you. God's ownership. God's rule. God's prerogative to oversee and dictate and govern the church. God owns it all. As we read last week from Acts 20, 28, the church is, is referred to as the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. He owns it by right of blood purchase, blood ransom, the blood of His own Son. He shed, He bought this bride, this building, this temple. He says, it's mine. He owns it. And then Hebrews 3 tells us that God has set His Son over the church. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. God owns and rules the church. Both sides of the pulpit belong to God. He rules them. He owns them. God assigns the tasks. God gives the gifts. God will pay the wages. All of our work is to be seen as done for God. Don't ever come into the church and think, well, I'm going to do so and so. I'm going to do this thing today so that the elders will think greatly of me. No, your work is done for God. The elders won't see it. The elders won't recognize the benefit of it. Your work is done for God. And we're all accountable to God for what we do. Paul says in Romans 14, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. 
you will not answer for the stewardship given to me. And I will not answer for the stewardship given to you. We, we will each stand alone before God and, and I won't be able to come in on your behalf and say, now look, Lord, I know that it, it, it looks like this, but trust me, I knew them and they had, they had great intentions. Nor will you be able to come in for me and say, look, Lord, I know that it looks like this, but I, I believe He meant well. No, we will stand alone in the judgment and we will give an account of ourselves to God. We will answer to God. Why? Because He is the owner. We don't answer to our fellow servants. We answer to God. That's what Paul's going to say in, in chapter 4. So then let us hear the word of the Lord in Matthew 25. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Now we, we might not all be in the, in the interpretation of the parable servants over the household, but we all have a function in the church. We all have gifts and talents, minas that God has given us to use in His church that we are to be using. If you are a Christian, you have a role to play in the church. God owns the church. Christ is the head of the church. He will return to settle accounts just like we see in these parables. He's going to come. I trust that we're all ready to answer the question what did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with it? It's helpful for us as we prepare to think of, of the day of judgment to ask that of ourselves as a, as a, a question of personal probing and analysis. What, what am I doing for Christ's church? What, what is your function in the church? Imagine that we'll all have to drive home from supper this evening and the question is this. What did I do today as a member of the body of Christ for the good of the body. What did I do? And there are essentially three options. You'd either have to say, well, I'm not a Christian. God hasn't given me any minas, any talents to use, and that's why I did nothing today. I came and sat and listened and ate and talked a little bit and went home. Secondly, God, you are a believer. God has given you some, some talents, some minas to put to use. And you'll have to say this evening, well, today I wrapped him up in a handkerchief and hid it away. I was afraid that if I did this or that, I might do it wrong. And then God would bring the hammer of judgment down because he's such a harsh master, you know. Well, that doesn't make any sense. As we see in the Word, if he's harsh as you, you pretend he is or think he is, then we ought to be in his service all the more. Or the third answer, you'll be able to say, you know what? God gave me some minas and I put them to use. As best as I could, by His strength, I sought to serve Him and to be a blessing in His church. We all have to strive to be faithful with what He's given us. And we will all give an account for what He's given us. And if we can say that we've done anything at all, we give all of the glory to God who gives us the talents to begin with. And that should be our, our supreme motivation for serving the Lord in His church. It's His glory. We get to bring Him more glory. We get to glorify Him more through our weak and pitiful service. And yet He will use that to glorify Himself. You want to glorify God on the earth? Then get to work in serving in His body and in the church. Many have planted and many have watered and 
Grace has been and is still being poured out amongst the people of God and the churches of God all over the world. All of the glory goes to God alone. God is doing this. Imagine children. A lot of times you like to catch a, a little creature, a bug or a worm or a, maybe a snake or something, and, and you might for a few hours or a day put it in a box or a jar and try to feed it something, but, and you think that's fun. But imagine that you were walking outside and you found uh, an anthill of fire ants and you stepped in it and they swarmed you and they were biting you and you could tell these ants want me gone. They hate me. They're trying to kill me. How, how many of us would be inclined to say, to, to reach down and peek, peek each one of them off of us individually and very calmly and carefully set them aside and put them back to where they belong and from that point on make sure that we give them everything that they need to survive and live and thrive. Most of us would never do that. We start smacking. We don't care. We want them dead. We want them gone. Now think about this God in heaven who created Mount Everest and He created the, the anthills. And He looks down upon His creatures who if we could in our sin, if we could, we would kill Him. How do I know that? Because when He came to the earth, that's what we did. We killed His Son. And instead of wiping all of us out and saying, I just want Him dead, He has been, been plucking each of us out of the, the, the fire and bringing us into His church and giving us everything that He needs or that we need for our flourishing and our growth and even will give us eternal life in His presence forever. This is a good God. That, that ought to motivate us to serve Him and not to think, well, if I, if I mess up, He'll, he'll, he'll smack me and, and I'll be dead. And that's not the way God, God works. That's not the way God does His children. He's a good God. Well, let me close with the, the verse that I read earlier from Ephesians 3. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.